The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast with no advertising. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and new EP, Robert. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. Growing up, I have a memory of always being aware of the Twilight Zone. Running on Houston Station Channel 39 at 11 p.m. This is KHTV Houston, Channel 39. But staying up that late to watch it was usually a weekend treat. When I was a teenager and my family traveled in the mid-80s, the zone could be found in reruns during the 10 or 11 p.m. hour just about in every TV market I visited. And when San Antonio's Kins TV started airing doubled-up episodes of Zone following Star Trek on Saturday nights, I was able to finally catch just about all the syndicated episodes, all introduced with the deadpan delivery of Rod Serling. The place is New York City, and this is the eve of the end. Because even at midnight, it's high noon, the hottest day in history, and you're about to spend it in the Twilight Zone. So many Twilight Zones have entered the collective consciousness. They have become cultural references now shown to people that never saw the original episodes and may not even get the reference being made. Time, time. Ah, this time enough at last. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was, was all the time I needed. Hello? My name is Doggy Tina, and I'm going to kill you. Mr. Chambers, don't get on that ship. The rest of the book, to serve men, it's, it's a cookbook. 
You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. You think that? Go ahead, Anthony. I'm a very bad man. Keep thinking that. There's a man out there. What? Look, look, he's crawling on... The Outer Limits, on the other hand, had always been something of a mystery to me. I have no memory of reruns of The Outer Limits growing up, nor knowing that much about the show. I didn't see The Outer Limits until I was an adult on later TNT and Sci-Fi Channel airings. In my experience, The Outer Limits just didn't seem to enjoy the extensive reruns that The Twilight Zone did, probably due to the one-hour format and that there were only 49 episodes, as opposed to around 100 half-hour Twilight Zones constantly in reruns nationwide. Therefore, I didn't know a lot about The Outer Limits, and I think a lot of people my age could say the same. When provided a DVD set of the TV series Search by listener Greg Blanchard for consideration on this podcast, I was led to the contributions of the person responsible for both that series and The Outer Limits, Mr. Leslie Stevens. Researching Stevens led to a great deal of very interesting information regarding his life and contributions to film and TV history. So it is my pleasure to present this modest retrospective of a unique creative voice who somehow never became the household name of your Gene Roddenberry's, your Aaron Spellings, and your Stephen J. Cannell's, or even your Glenn Larson's. Leslie Stevens, his early films, and The Outer Limits on this episode of Forgotten TV. Leslie Clark Stevens IV was born into a military family in 1924 at Walter Reed in Washington, D.C., at a time when his father, Leslie Clark Stevens III, was on track to an admiralty in the Navy. The elder Stevens had graduated from Annapolis, studied at MIT, and was a Rhodes Scholar with his own collection of H.G. Wells' first editions. Like Gene Roddenberry, young Leslie grew up reading these as well as the amazing stories and astounding pulp magazines. When Lieutenant Commander Stevens was naval attaché in London, Leslie attended Gladstone's prep school and later Westminster Abbey, along with other children of the political and military elite. Leslie was given a weekly allowance for memorizing passages from both Shakespeare and the Bible. Around age 12, he expressed interest in theater and attended weekend performances of Shakespeare at London's Old Vic. According to his own account, one afternoon he simply decided he was a playwright, and he began writing his own plays. His mother Nellie encouraged this interest in theater and would occasionally serve as pianist for the theater group he later belonged to after the family's return to D.C., at age 15, Leslie entered one of his plays in a high school contest and won a ticket to Orson Welles' Mercury Theater, then touring in a production of Henry IV, Part V. The wide-eyed teenager hung around long enough that Wells mistook him for a gopher and sent him on a coffee run. Leslie was allowed to continue working as an assistant for the remainder of the troop's stay in D.C. During this two-week period, he met stage actress Tallulah Bankhead, Burgess Meredith, and Agnes Moorhead. He ended up selling his play, The Mechanical Rat, 
to Wells and the Mercury Theater, making him a professional writer. Like something straight out of some Depression-era story of a boy leaving home to make his fortune in the world, 15-year-old Leslie was so enamored by his stint as theater assistant that when the acting company left D.C. for Philadelphia, Leslie tagged along without even telling his parents. Sleeping on a coiled-up rope in the flyloft above stage at the Chestnut Street Opera House, Leslie sent a postcard to his parents telling him he was safe and well. It was here that Leslie secretly began to work as dialogue prompter for Wells himself, and he began to pick up other theater stagecraft. All was well until the authorities finally showed up for the truant youth nearly a month later. Incredibly, his parents allowed him to continue touring with the Mercury Theater for another six months, after which Leslie returned home to attend summer school. The bright teenager applied himself and quickly finished his school obligations, graduating early, giving him time to devote to honing his playwriting skills. He joined Maryland's Hilltop Theater as an actor. Hilltop was a professional summer stock theater. A door opened to him due to his stint with Orson Welles and Mercury. During his time there, he met key contacts in show business that would later benefit him on Broadway. As World War II progressed, the now 19-year-old Stevens joined the military effort in 1943 at the height of domestic patriotic fervor. Encouraged to attend Annapolis by his father, Stevens instead entered the Army Air Corps, was assigned to their intelligence unit, stationed in Iceland, and attained the rank of captain by his 20th birthday, the youngest captain in the U.S. Army. During his Air Corps service, Stevens wrote an incredible 30 shows for servicemen stationed in the Icelandic islands. Following the war, Stevens attended the Yale University School of Drama on Uncle Sam's dime, which took him into stints training with the American Theater Wing, learning from established stage director Joseph Anthony. At one of his night jobs, Stevens met a Greenwich Village musician and songwriter that would turn out to be one of the key individuals in Stevens' professional life, Joseph Stefano. As the 1950s arrived, the odd couple of the light-haired, straight-laced Stevens and the dark-haired, jeans- and leather-jacketed Stefano worked the village nightclub scene, providing music and dialogue for top nightclub acts of the time. By 1953, Stevens had married and took a job as copyboy at Time magazine. During the days of blacklisting and McCarthyist inquisitions, many aimed at the entertainment industry. Stevens was disturbed by the political direction in which the nation was headed, exacerbated by a friend disappearing one night following a visit from the FBI. He even attempted to join the Communist Party but they wouldn't have the straight-laced Stevens with his military intelligence background and Navy Admiral CIA-connected father. In later life, he would assert that the incident was simply part of taking a stand against McCarthyism and not indicative of a real interest in communism. And he went back to working on his plays when he wasn't working at time. He completed a play called Bullfight, inspired by his absorption of Mexican culture during his youthful trips to Tijuana. 
Stevens enlisted the aid of co-worker and friend Gail Stein in getting it produced off-Broadway. Gail crowdfunded most of the needed funds, with a white knight investor coming through with the final portion. With a cast picked off of Tennessee Williams' recent Camino Real, Bullfight premiered one snowy night in January 1954 to rave reviews. New play Bullfight, destined for Broadway. An extraordinary play which is drama for the moment, music for the moment, and dance for the moment. Critics seemed particularly impressed with the way both the bullfight and a cockfight were graphically depicted without actually being shown. Stevens soon found Hollywood interest in his play, from TV director Sidney Lumet, as well as a producer from Columbia Pictures, with both deals falling through. However, with a successful first production, Stevens could now get plays produced on Broadway, and he did to varying degrees of success. Champagne Complex in 1955, The Lovers in 1956, the film rights of which were obtained by Charlton Heston and turned into 1965's The Warlord, and The Marriage Go-Round in 1958, which was directed by the legendary Joseph Anthony to great success, and three years later became a film with Susan Hayward James Mason, and a then-unknown Julie Newmar. Am I to understand that you forbid me to borrow your husband? Borrow, beg, or steal? During Stevens' Broadway years, the medium of television was maturing from an odd post-war novelty of the rich that presented moving pictures to go along with a sound broadcast that had to be tuned separately, to a mass media format with some 50 million homes across the nation tuning in nightly to see the latest misadventures of Lucy Ricardo and Ralph Cramden, or whoever was performing on Ed Sullivan. In the mid-50s, when television networks were ravenously scavenging for content to air on the numerous Playhouse dramatic anthologies so popular in that era, Stevens wrote his first content for television, an episode of Four Star Playhouse which would also air the first televised content written by Gene Roddenberry, then writing under the pseudonym Robert Wesley. Film by Four Star. Stevens' episode, Award, featuring Ida Lupino, aired on CBS June 30, 1955. Soon he was writing for Craft Theater, the DuPont Show of the Month, and the venerable Playhouse 90. Writing for Playhouse 90, Stevens again worked with Joseph Stefano, who also had followed the allure of the relatively new medium. As the 50s progressed, television opportunities in New York began to dry up as production of many shows migrated to the West Coast. While other writers such as Rod Serling expressed alarm over what he called the mass Western migration of creatives moving to Hollywood, Stevens was optimistic about TV's West Coast future. In 1959, Stevens found himself the focus of an article for Time magazine, where he had worked as a copy boy only five years earlier, where he spoke on the subject. I am a firm believer in Hollywood's golden future and thumb my nose at those who cry twilight in the smog. With distance all but erased by increasingly rapid transportation, The myth that there are two opposing schools has collapsed, 
The New York versus Hollywood attitude that once separated actors, writers, and directors into two separate camps is a thing of the past. Stevens himself was enthralled by the possibilities of Hollywood while there for the filming of 1957's The Left-Handed Gun with Paul Newman. Stevens had adapted Gore Vidal's story into a screenplay for Warner Brothers, and it wasn't long after that he made the move out west himself, followed by new girlfriend and TV actress Katie Milroy, as well as agent Stan Colbert. His first marriage had ended by this time, and the pair found a Spanish colonial house with a pool nestled between Beverly Hills and Hollywood, a move financed by Milroy, who had her own family money. The pair were married in 1958, and as Stevens began to craft new marketable Hollywood identities for himself and Katie, she took the stage name Kate Manx. With revenue now flowing from film and TV, Stevens formed his own production company, Daystar Productions, a name derived from Shakespeare and not the Bible. And his rationale behind the name begins to reveal the unconventional thinking of this individual. The star that shines in the day is the sun. I wanted to use solar, but that was already taken by some of the company. I'm a great believer in the solar channel, the realization that the actual body of the sun itself is conscious. Not sentient, but conscious. Daystar was formed to be an independent creator-owned production company, Hollywood's first free independent, with no permanent ties to a major Hollywood studio. Daystar's first office was a one-room bungalow in an unpretentious corner of 20th Century Fox's Westwood lot, under a contract to write pilots for TCF's TV arm. During this time at Fox, Stevens and Colbert not only came up with TV pilots, but also ahead-of-their-time TV production concepts. One of these was the filming of a 15-minute trailer, encapsulating scenes of four proposed episodes that would be screened for TV executives following an actual pilot episode, what we now call a sizzle reel. Another of their concepts was giving the creatives ownership participation in their shows. While waiting on the production of their first TV pilot for Fox to begin, Stevens and Colbert began toying with the idea of making their own independent film. Noticing the house next door, a red brick mansion once owned by Greta Garbo and Cole Porter, was now vacant, the pair snuck onto the adjoining property. Stevens began to formulate the premise of a film plot in his head, wandering the empty house. Stevens wrote a script, and the pair plotted out a production plan that would utilize guerrilla filmmaking practices using minimal crew and equipment that could run off normal household electric. And with neither of them taking a fee for their work, the actual film budget came to about $40,000. The pair took a week-long leave from Fox and got producer Ray Stark, then working on the world of Susie Wong, to invest. With three principal actors, Warren Oates, Corey Allen, and Stephen's own wife, Kate Manx, along with a skeleton crew of less than a dozen, private property began filming in the summer of 1959. 
white noises. It was over the casting of Kate Max that Stevens and Colbert disagreed. Colbert had wanted Anne Bancroft for the role, but the disagreement was moot when Kate laid down the demand that she be cast or they could not shoot the movie in her house. Since the plot and production hinged on filming on the two adjoining properties, the decision had been made. The movie was previewed to the Screen Actors Guild, and the industry was soon abuzz with excitement for the film, and positive reviews began flowing. Studios began expressing interest in distributing the independent film, and a proposed $400,000 deal with none other than 20th Century Fox would mean a tenfold return on the film's production cost. However, there was a snag. This was prior to the institution of the MPAA film rating system, and although enforcement was waning with a new slew of films offering increasingly adult themes, this was still the era of the Hayes Code, with wide studio-released films needing a motion picture production code certificate for distribution. Widely called the Hayes Code, named after Presbyterian elder and prominent Republican Will H. Hayes, it was enacted in 1930 in reaction to a perceived increase in immorality depicted in films of the libertine 1920s. Stephen's film, depicting a pair of young criminals, one dominant and savage, the other an unassertive virgin, holed up in a vacant house, plotting to seduce the sexually deprived wife of an executive next door, was denied a production code certificate. Although Stevens had made sure his film was free of nudity, profanity, overt violence, or sex scenes, the entire plot revolved around sexual themes, with references to homosexuality, voyeurism, rape, as well as bondage and domination. With no certificate, the film would be de facto denied distribution by any major studio. However, Stevens lucked into a theatrical booking of the film at Manhattan's Paris Theater, an art house which previously had only shown subtitled foreign films. This allowed the film the clout to obtain a limited overseas distribution, and by the end of the year, the film had grossed $2 million. Private property was viewed by then-presidential hopeful John F. Kennedy and wife Jackie, the night of the pivotal 1960 West Virginia Democratic primary. Jackie Kennedy recalled it as some awful, sordid thing about some murder in California. Really, I mean, just morbid. Not surprisingly, private property was condemned by the self-appointed National Legion of Decency an unofficial arm of the Catholic Church that provided lists of unrighteous films considered not suitable for good Catholics to view. Stevens surprisingly met with the Legion in New York, listening to the priests for hours, and by his account, came out of the meeting converted, saying, I will never make such a movie again. Of the seven deadly sins, lust is the one that incites on film. You can film excesses of avarice or gluttony or pride, and the average moviegoer forgets it about an hour after he sees it on screen. But lust incites warped adult minds and many teenagers. I have learned that film is not only an overwhelmingly powerful art form, but that it carries a social responsibility. Now no longer working with Fox, 
Stevens busied himself producing the film adaptation of The Marriage Go-Round, during which a disagreement resulted in his split from partner Stan Colbert. His next film, Heroes Island, was, as he called it, a color, widescreen, low-budget idea picture about two 18th-century indentured servants bequeathed freedom on a California coastal island. Stephen's wife, Kate Manx, cast in the film, received prominent billing along with James Mason, Neville Brand, and Rip Torn. With Heroes Island complete, Stevens partnered with composer Dominic Frontier, who would expand his skill set and learn the role of producer on Daystar's first TV project. Stoney Burke. The modern rodeo western Stoney Burke with Jack Lord ran a single season on ABC starting in the fall of 1962. The series was given authenticity by six-time world champion saddle bronc rider Casey Tibbs, who not only inspired the show, but performed stunt riding for the series. Stoney Burke also featured a 26-year-old Bruce Dern in his first regular TV series role. Stevens himself directed 10 episodes of the series and is credited with writing 11. The show was impressively produced for a nascent studio that owned no sound stages. It was shot mostly outdoors, on location, with the occasional daily soundstage rental. Despite an impressive 38 share of the viewing audience, ABC surprisingly canceled the series following a 32-episode run. Reportedly, the cancellation had more to do with high turnover for commercial sponsorship of the show than the actual Nielsen ratings. For years, it was known as the most successful failure in TV history. With Stoney Burke in production and work on proposed spin-offs and other pilots in progress, Daystar Productions expanded and leased the Crosby Building on Sunset Boulevard and now took up four floors of offices. While things were looking up for Daystar, in his personal life, Stephen's marriage was troubled. The couple often fought, and the now-pregnant Kate began sensing emotional abandonment, with her husband increasingly absorbed in multiple film and TV projects. A month after her appearance in the premiere episode of Stony Burke, the pair quietly separated, and they were soon divorced. Kate Max attempted to continue a film career now as a single mother without the aid of a producer-director husband, but found no success, only making two TV appearances post-divorce. From here, the accounts of her personal life and her interactions with Stevens becomes disheartening and is not the focus of this podcast. Her story ends with her death in late 1964 at age 34 officially ruled a suicide from an overdose of sleeping pills. Like so many tragic Hollywood stories, her death remains the subject of questions and speculation that for some have never been fully answered. Forgotten TV will return in a moment. Jack Lord as Tony Burke. Grand entry. Grand action! Grandeur! See Jack Lord as Tony Burke every week on ABC. 
There's the witch. She has the evil eye. Ava Gardner, Anthony Franciosa in The Naked Maha on the Sunday night movie on ABC TV. No, I just invented a new capsule. I'm about to send it in space. <laughs> it's pretty funny for a mother. And there are times when even a father is mildly amusing. On the Patty Duke Show, every week on ABC. This is an ABC color presentation. Following Stony Burke. The next successful TV project from Daystar became the series Stevens is arguably best known for, and one for which he again teamed with old Greenwich Village partner Joseph Stefano. United Artists programming VP Richard Dorso had been instrumental in selling Stony Burke as a series for ABC. I had a deal with Leslie as a producer under contract to UA, and I said, Let's cook up a TV series about science fiction. Leslie was a talented, able producer, and I knew the idea could be sold to ABC. Well, that's what Dorso says. But Stevens had been trying to get a science fiction TV series made since 1959, when working in the bungalow on the Fox lot. But no one was interested. And more than one person claims to have participated in the inception of... The Outer Limits. Dorso did get ABC programming VP Dan Melnick on board, and according to the commonly accepted narrative, the trio worked up a plan to sell the other ABC executives on an unconventional series concept. To do that, Joe Stefano was brought on to the project. Since those Greenwich Village songwriting days with Stevens, Stefano had made a name for himself, rewriting a script for Alfred Hitchcock, for a film which turned both the production code and the world of cinema on its ear. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Now, Stefano would take on the new role of producer in addition to providing his services as a writer. Leslie Stevens. Joe started with us as a kind of figurehead he had a name, and he was New Blood, which was what we needed to sell The Outer Limits as a series. We hired him, and he came in a day or two before we started shooting the Please Stand By pilot. Yes, the original title for this new series was Please Stand By. However, ABC nixed this title as the Cuban Missile Crisis was still fresh in the minds of the public and no one wanted the show title to be mistaken for an actual alert. As the new series would be an anthology with no continuing characters, ABC also wanted to know who was going to host the show, as anthologies of the era were typically introduced by an on-screen host, a la Rod Serling on The Twilight Zone. Would it be Stevens himself, Joe Stefano, during an idea session with ABC and UA, Stevens spitballed the concept of an unseen narrator accompanied by a simulation of a CRT picture dot, test patterns, and various other TV picture tube effects. Rewriting the original opening narration, Stevens took the final line referencing the great adventure the viewer was about to participate in, reaching from the inner mind to outer space 
and now declared the adventure would reach from the inner mind to the outer limits. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. If we wish to make it louder, we will bring up the volume. If we wish to make it softer, we will tune it to a whisper. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can roll the image, make it flutter. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your television set. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. That control voice was that of actor Vic Perrin, who would later provide the voices of both Nomad and the Guardian of Forever on Star Trek. The opening narration of 1972's Gargoyles, and voices for numerous animated characters for Saturday morning TV. Stevens laid out what kind of stories would be featured on the new science fiction anthology. Our stories will deal with the human condition. They are concerned with people, and we want to make comments on life today. For all the great complexity of modern scientific apparatus and knowledge, drama begins in the heart and soul and mind. One key concept for the series was that episodes would feature what producers called the bear, a one-per-week monster or creature effect, one of the hooks Dan Melnick insisted on to sell the show to ABC. This guideline was followed for all first-season episodes with only a couple of exceptions. Stevens himself managed scripts, actors, and directors on the series, Dominic Frontier composed the show theme and episode scores, oversaw actual production as well as acting as liaison to ABC. Among the many other talents brought on board TOL, as I'll abbreviate the series title, were legendary cinematographer Ted McCord, who had shot The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, East of Eden, and Stephen's own private property. Makeup artist Fred Phillips, who had worked on The Wizard of Oz and trained under Cecil Holland and Lon Chaney. And Robert Justman, assistant director from The Adventures of Superman, The Thin Man, and Philip Marlowe. Bob Justman noted the collaborative environment on set. In TV, most ADs are not considered as creative people. Outer Limits was unusual in that there was a very free exchange of ideas. Yes, everyone at Daystar was approachable. Stevens would come on set and eat lunch with the crew, and people were encouraged to contribute their own ideas. TOL was produced by Daystar in association with United Artists Television. Initially going over budget, Stefano started coming in under budget by Episode 3, and even as the budget and shooting time per episode was reduced, he made it work. With typical Daystar efficiency, the show was shot on rented sound stages at KTTV Channel 11 in Hollywood, as well as on the MGM backlot as part of a cut-rate deal made by unit production manager Lindsay Parsons, Jr. 
Like Stony Burke, the show made good use of judiciously selected locations, such as Bronson Cave, and a closed radio station used in the pilot episode, The Galaxy Being. This premiere episode that went on the air in September 1963 gave viewers a heavy dose of science fiction when a radio station broadcast engineer, played by Cliff Robertson, uses the broadcast tower to contact an alien being who is accidentally transported to Earth when a DJ cranks the station to full power. Before havoc ensues, the human and the alien engage in some interesting philosophical dialogue. First-season episodes tended to mix horror in with the sci-fi elements and featured memorable bears, such as the Ebonites in Nightmare, the obscenely large bugged-out eyes of the Mutant, and of course, the human-faced giant ants of the Xanti Misfits. Many of these creature effects startled early 1960s viewers, and by only the third episode, some ABC affiliates found the Thetan alien from the third episode, The Architects of Fear, so shocking, they blacked out its appearance during the broadcast, while other stations tape-delayed the episode to run after the late news. One bare idea Stevens had that was quashed by ABC was that of the sound monster. I found out you could take a cycle note and oscillate it from the deepest possible bass to beyond the range of human hearing, and as you went, it would resonate until objects in the room, glass, ashtrays, would begin to vibrate. I cooked it up as an alien appearing aurally, a monster that wouldn't quit, and there'd be one in every house. ABC's Dan Melnick put the brakes on this plan. Another story Stefano wrote a script for, The Cats, involved an alien invasion by way of the possession of household cats. When thinking of the potential viewer impact this episode might have on children, he opted not to go forward with production. Stevens ended up writing four episodes, Stefano 12. Between them, this amounted to nearly half the first season episodes. Like the writers of two other notable speculative fiction series you might think of, Outer Limits writers worked in social and political commentary under the guise of sci-fi. In a 2000 interview, Stefano commented, It absolutely served that purpose. I was writing things that were anti-CIA. If I had gone to any network and said, I have an idea for a show that is against the CIA, they would have thrown me out. Here we had monsters and alien beings that took the curse off of it. We had just come out of a very strange, dark period. The 50s, as we look back on them now, we know the harm that was done, and then a few of us sensed that something was wrong, and we got to write shows about it. The interesting thing is that the audience still got it. I received mail that was unbelievable from 12-year-old lads who knew what I was talking about. Stevens is also credited with developing the concept and term bottle show, referring to an episode that uses existing sets and props and is produced at minimal expense. TOL episode Controlled Experiment was shot in four and a half days and was the cheapest episode in terms of production costs for the series, using only three simple sets 
and cleverly reusing footage to fill the episode runtime. The episode was specifically written to conserve costs and reduce production time, and the practice of bottle episodes has become common in television series production. It is somehow fitting that this episode's guest actress, Grace Lee Whitney, later was a semi-regular cast member of Star Trek, a series that became known for its use of bottle episodes. First season ratings were decent, but not spectacular for the time, closing the season with a 19 Nielsen rating, airing against CBS's popular To Tell the Truth, as well as NBC's Monday Night Movie. ABC mulled over, reducing the budget even further, as well as potentially moving the show to another night. UA executive Richard Dorso shed light on the position ABC was in. When a series flops, the obvious occurs. But when a series is in between, the network will take a long look at it to see what can be done to push those numbers up to a real success. The Outer Limits had close to a 30 share in those days. Although any show could stay on today with that percentage, things were different in 1963. The ABC executive that had greenlit the series and had creative control at the network was Ben Brady. Stevens' frequent attempts to circumvent Brady's directives by going over his head to the network bosses was a constant source of friction. This was the status quo throughout the first season. For decades, it was believed that ABC's time slot change decision for season two triggered Stevens to leave the show, with Frontier and Stefano following suit, a narrative put forth by Stevens himself. However, in a 2011 interview, Dominic Frontier revealed an incident that instigated a changing of the guard on the outer limits. One day, an argument between Stevens and a low-level ABC accountant over a $700 invoice, likely sent to Daystar by mistake, escalated to where Stevens threatened to withhold delivery of the next episode of the series. Despite Frontier's efforts to have Stevens smooth things over with the network, which would involve Stevens apologizing for his outburst and making up a story if he had to, Stevens refused. Stevens had overestimated his position of power, thinking TOL was enough of a hit that ABC would continue to capitulate to his eccentricities. In addition, Daystar had as many as five pilots in pre-production, so he felt his company was in a good position, even if they lost TOL. This was the last straw for ABC, as told by Daystar production designer Jack Poplin. There were some pretty deadly piranhas at ABC. Personally, I always thought that Leslie had gotten a little too arrogant for them, and the network brass decided they were going to squash him. ABC replaced Stevens and Frontier with Ben Brady as showrunner. Behind the scenes, the show was nearly canceled, as ABC felt all the issues they had to deal with regarding TOL made the show more trouble than it was worth. But UA Television felt there was more life in the show, as it was increasingly popular with younger viewers and the college crowd, and indicated to ABC they wished to have the show go another season under Brady as new producer. The Outer Limits was moved from its Monday night location to Saturdays against the incredibly popular Jackie Gleason show 
which would end up taking a toll on the audience. Although Joe Stefano wasn't removed from his position, with the time slot and production changes in the works, he saw where things were headed and resigned from the show. New showrunner Ben Brady immediately reversed the thoughtful canons laid out for the show by Joe Stefano, emphasizing high literary style, the inner life of man, and tolerable terror, and gave a directive meant to appeal to a wider audience. The Outer Limits will offer pure entertainment with the strongest emphasis on action and adventure. The only must that each adventure and each story possess will be a startling effect important to the story, one extreme crystallization of excitement. Brady even dropped the bare requirement from early Season 2 episodes until mandated by ABC to reinstate the weekly monster. Brady began experiencing some of the same production problems Stevens had, including an even further reduced budget. As a result, many Season 2 episodes resorted too many times to stock footage from 50s sci-fi movies and bears that were not actors in full makeup, but hand puppets or maquettes. Many episodes of Season 2 were based on previously written stories by science fiction authors, such as Harlan Ellison. Jerry Soule, and Earl Andrew Binder, rewritten as teleplays by staff writers like Selig Lester and Robert C. Dennis. While many were not up to the level of quality of the first season, season two did give us outstanding episodes, such as Demon with a Glass Hand and I, Robot. While not an incompetent producer, as early as the third week of season two production, Brady felt the ship begin to sink. Fifteen episodes into Season 2, A.D. Bob Justman left the show at the same time ABC decided to pull the plug, allowing the final two episodes to bring the show to the half-season mark. Science fiction entertainment has often been fodder for people that promote certain beliefs regarding aliens and UFOs, and T.O.L. is no exception. Some put forth the idea that TV shows like TOL and later Star Trek series were part of a predictive programming PSYOP campaign to groom the public into accepting planned future events and subsequent societal changes that would result, or conversely, as part of a disinformation campaign. An episode often referred to is The Architects of Fear, where a consortium of elite scientists scheme to construct a false alien threat to humanity to bring about a unified response from the governments of the world. This episode actually later inspired a plotline in Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' 1986 comic book miniseries, Watchmen, which was made into a 2009 feature film and a 2019 HBO series. Similarities to Project Bluebeam, a popular UFO-related conspiracy theory, are often pointed out. The episode OBIT dealt with a device employed by a Defense Department agency that could remotely view any selected individual within 500 miles, complete with audio. The device in episode was revealed to be alien technology and only one of an unknown number of machines in existence, with obvious massive implications on personal privacy of citizens. Elements of the plot have remarkable similarities to Project Echelon, 
the Total Information Awareness Program instituted by the Creepy Information Awareness Office. And of course, the NSA surveillance revelations of 2013. But Stevens' military intelligence background and that of his Navy Admiral father resulted in them both being named personally in some interesting conspiracy theories. As put forth by Dr. Michael Sala on this 2016 Coast to Coast AM broadcast. There was a vice admiral by the name of Leslie Stevens. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Well, yes, he is a very interesting person because he is one of two admirals so far that I've been able to locate that were involved in the establishment of a Navy space program. Um, And uh, he was uh, someone that was actually even involved in one of the committees that had been set up to kind of like throw the public off concerning um, the existence of extraterrestrials while at the same time kind of preparing humanity behind the scenes through the media, through the mass media, for the truth. And so Leslie Stevens, uh, Admiral Leslie Stevens was involved in that. So he was a member and even at one point was a director of, of an organization called the Psychological Strategy Board. And that was directly involved in uh, this initiative to get the media to shape public perceptions about uh, UFOs and extraterrestrial life. Well, they were pretty successful doing that, weren't they? Very much. They turned to the media. They turned to shows like uh, The Twilight Zone and especially The Outer Limits. Uh, because this was something that was uh, the executive producer for the Outer Limits was actually the son of Admiral Leslie Stevens. Well, that was his name. That person was Leslie Stevens too. So that was Leslie Stevens the fourth. Uh, so you had Admiral Stevens, who was uh, Leslie Stevens the third, and then you had the uh, Admiral. Ah. So then you had Leslie Stevens the fourth, who was the director of the Outer Limits, and he was the one that basically coached uh, Gene Roddenberry on how to develop a science fiction program, that what Stevens did was that he kind of like let Roddenberry in on the big secret that in the future that the U.S. Navy would actually have this vast space fleet that would actually roam the galaxy. So he was telling Roddenberry this in the 60s, because that was the Navy's hope. And that, of course, became the, the, the premise of Star Trek. Government documents and official websites confirm Vice Admiral Leslie Stevens III was indeed on and later was the director of the Psychological Strategy Board that conducted psychological operations, or PSYOPs, during the Cold War. Salah makes the additional claims that he was aware of a covert Navy espionage program to investigate Nazi flying saucers, as well as being involved in the development of a U.S. Navy space fleet comprised of kilometers-long spacecraft secretly assisted by Nordic extraterrestrials. Cue the appropriate music. But there was a not widely known significant connection between The Outer Limits and Star Trek. TOL production assistant Tom Sheldon noted the creator of Star Trek would hang around their set a lot during his days on The Lieutenant. Gene Roddenberry watched our dailies all the time and took a lot of phone calls from our screening room. 
He was spurring his imagination and checking on the incredible quality control we had. I wondered why he was there, but he was there, more often than not, during the time he was coming up with Star Trek. When TOL was over, several of the production crew went over to work on the new Star Trek series, including Robert Justman, A.D. Claude Binion Jr., makeup artist Fred Phillips, and talented effects designer Hua Chang. A quick cross-referencing on IMDb shows some 20 behind-the-scenes crew worked on both series. Joseph Stefano was also notably offered the opportunity to run the third season of Star Trek, which he turned down, and the third season showrunning duties went to Fred Freiberger. Stefano did later contribute to the Star Trek universe, writing the first season Next Generation episode, Skin of Evil. Several effects and concepts originally used on TOL reappeared or were recreated for Star Trek. Janos Prohaska brought his creature costume, originally used on TOL episode The Probe, on the set of Trek to play the Horta in The Devil in the Dark. The process used to make pointed ears for TOL episode The Sixth Finger was reused for Leonard Nimoy's Mr. Spock. Aliens from two TOL episodes were shown in The Cage, Star Trek's first pilot. And yes, producer Bob Justman utilized Steven's bottle show concept on more than one occasion on Star Trek. For a deep dive into all aspects of The Outer Limits, I recommend The Outer Limits Companion by David Chow, last published in 1998. Although currently out of print, a final version, The Last Outer Limits Companion, is said to be forthcoming. Those five pilots Daystar was producing and that Stevens had hoped to fall back on following the loss of Outer Limits never sold. In fact, at least two of them were for ABC, who was not very likely to give another new series to someone they had just ousted. As 1965 arrived, Daystar had been reduced to a one-man operation, or rather, a one-man, one-woman operation, when you count Steven's personal assistant. Leslie Stevens. I have to admit that the bottom fell out for me, financially and career-wise, a year or two after The Outer Limits folded. I was broke and out of it. We hung together in morale and creativity long enough to turn out something, though. That something was perhaps the strangest entry of Stevens' resume. 1966's Incubus. Stevens' assistant Mona Skager was dating commodities broker Anthony M. Taylor, who, with profits burning a hole in his pocket, was craving to get into the film industry. At a meeting, Stevens and Taylor discussed the growing market for niche interest in art house films, a discussion which included Stevens' own success with private property five years earlier. Stevens quickly churned out a script for an avant-garde film which, in a repeat of private property, would star his current wife, Allison Ames. A leading man was obtained in the form of William Shatner, who had appeared on a second season episode of TOL. Ames' friend Anne Atmar and Serbian actor Milos Milos would co-star, as well as former bit-part film-turned-TV actress Eloise Hart a personal friend of Stevens. 
Stevens had the script translated into Esperanto, a constructed language created in the late 19th century, intended as a universal language to foster international harmony. Thus, Incubus would only be the second film shot exclusively in Esperanto. The actors were put through a 10-day boot camp of sorts to learn their lines in a language none of them spoke. A surreal, atmospheric, black-and-white, subtitled horror film would do well on the art house theatrical circuit, or so Stevens thought. Having the film available only in Esperanto also appealed to his growing interest in esotericism and New Age philosophy. As David Shaw, author of The Outer Limits Companion, put it, it was exactly the sort of global conceit that would appeal to Leslie Stevens. Filming locations were secured at Big Sur, as well as Mission San Antonio de Padua, a fairly remote Spanish mission an hour and a half drive from the coast. Obtaining permission from the Franciscan friars that ran the mission took some doing, considering the plot of the film. The storyline involved a succubus, tired of her lot in life of seducing sinful men to their deaths, thus providing souls for hell. When she attempts to corrupt a man of pure soul and fails, the succubi summon an incubus to corrupt his sister, but things don't work out as planned. Stevens whipped up a dummy script to mislead the friars, and the production began an 18-day film shoot using Daystar regulars Dominic Frontier, who recycled music from TOL, Fred Phillips for makeup, and Conrad Hall for cinematography. William Shatner related decades later that an itinerant, long-haired hippie wandered onto the set and was treated rudely by the crew. The hippie supposedly then cursed the production. He also claims that a few months following Incubus filming on the set of Star Trek, a rock was thrown through the window of his trailer with a note attached saying, You're next, Shatner, the Esperantists. However, both accounts have to be taken with a grain of salt. The hippie account is related on the 2001 DVD release, which contains a separate commentary as well as an interview featuring Conrad Hall, Anthony M. Taylor, and assistant cinematographer William Fraker, none of which mention the hippie incident. Shatner makes numerous bizarre statements throughout his commentary, which are impossible to take seriously, and nearly the entire commentary could be taken as a running joke, such as later stating the hippie choreographed his fight scenes. The second account is included in his 2011 book, which omits his earlier hippie account is written in typical Shatner tongue-in-cheek style, contradicts statements made in his DVD commentary, contains a timeline discrepancy for when the rock incident supposedly happened in relation to the Incubus film premiere, and moreover, the account is written in Esperanto, which requires a visit to his website to translate. And of course, these accounts were related 35 and 45 years later, after a curse mythology had built up over the decades around the odd film. But why do many believe the film was cursed? As Eloise Hart put it, everybody's life went to hell after that film. Everything went terribly wrong with the film and with the lives of almost everybody in it. Me, most of all. 
All manner of inaccurate and questionable details surrounding the following events are presented on various websites, newspaper articles, and books. So here are the facts and timeline as best I can determine. While Stevens and Taylor were seeking studio distribution for the film, on the night of January 30th, 1966, actor Milos Milos, who played the Incubus himself, evidently murdered Barbara Thomason Rooney, also known as actress Carolyn Mitchell, wife of actor Mickey Rooney, and then shot himself. Milos and Barbara had been having an affair, but as she and her husband were preparing to reconcile, the hot-tempered Milos wasn't having it. Although the shots from the 38 handgun weren't heard by any of the Rooney children in the house, police concluded it was a murder-suicide. The tragic crime became headlines across the country and was not good publicity for Incubus. In April of that year, Alice and Ames sued Stevens for divorce, starting divorce proceedings that would take nearly two years. Unable to secure any domestic distribution for Incubus, considered unmarketable by most studios, the film was finally booked to premiere at the San Francisco International Film Festival in late October 1966. Although original details on this are somehow impossible to find, Twelve days prior to that debut, following an argument with friend and co-star Allison Ames, Anne Atmar committed suicide. Seventeen full months after filming, Incubus finally premiered at the San Francisco International Film Festival. It was soon discovered the print that arrived at the theater was either missing the English subtitles or the soundtrack, depending on whose account you go by. So after 10 minutes of the defective film running, a short travelogue film was queued up to placate the audience of 5,000 and buy time to find the spare print across town. Producer Anthony Taylor, tipsy from the reception and suffering with sepsis from a foot injury, retrieved the print and the screening finally proceeded after about an hour's wait. A group of at least 50 Esperanto-speaking viewers raucously laughed at the continual, incorrect pronunciations of the cast. Reviews were likewise not kind to the film. By the time of the premiere, Stevens had already lost interest in Incubus and was busy writing episodes of The Virginian for Universal Television. He certainly needed the work. In 1967, Stevens filed for bankruptcy, possibly in a move to reduce an alimony judgment but he was in serious debt at the time. Taylor could only secure theatrical distribution for the film in France. Without even a one-sheet ever being printed for it, film prints were stored away, and it fell into total obscurity in the U.S. And now for the most sordid entry of this narrative. Two years following the film premiere, on December 29, 1968, Marina Habe, daughter of actress Eloise Hart and Hungarian writer Hans Habe, and family friend of the Stevens, whom she often babysat for during her teen years, was home from college on Christmas break. The 17-year-old was out late on a triple date to a local nightclub, and following the date, went back to her 22-year-old date's Sunset Boulevard house 
then left for home after 3 a.m. The account of events Eloise Hart related to family offer more details than you'll find in the newspapers of the time. Eloise awoke around 3.30 a.m. to a barking family dog and the sound of a car pulling up. Stumbling to the window to check on things, she saw her daughter's car parked and assumed Marina would be coming into the house momentarily and return to bed. When Eloise continued to hear the dog bark, as well as the sound of a loud car engine, she returned to the window to the horrific sight of a man carrying Marina into the passenger side of a black sedan, which sped off from the driveway of their West Hollywood home into the night. Marina's keys were still in the ignition of her car, and the emergency brake was pulled up with such force it was doubtful the brake had been set by the petite 113-pound girl. Police searched the area for the next two days to no avail. But then a couple walking on Mulholland Drive noticed a purse lying on the side of the road, which prompted a passerby to have his Great Dane sniff out nearby bushes. Everyone's worst fears were realized when Marina Habe's body was found that New Year's Day in a ravine 30 feet from the road, only four miles from her home. She had been viciously murdered and the victim of numerous stab wounds by two different knives. With a mentally distraught Eloise in the hospital under sedation, Leslie Stevens' now ex-wife, Allison Ames, identified the body. Although it has never conclusively been proven, Marina Habe's murder is possibly linked to none other than the so-called Manson family. According to author Ed Sanders in his book, The Family, Manson's followers personally knew her, and the author states she had visited the infamous Spawn movie ranch in 1968 when the family was living there. Marina was also said to be friends with Deirdre Lansbury, troubled daughter of Angela Lansbury and brief Manson family follower. Critics of Sanders' book point out these claims are unreferenced, as well as the fact that Spawn Ranch was a popular tourist attraction and many famous people knew or had encounters with Manson or his followers during these years, including a 12-year-old Brian Cranston, beach boy Dennis Wilson, music producer Terry Melcher, son of Doris Day, singer Neil Young, actor Michael Caine, among others. But according to a Habe family source, one of the Manson family women arrested in the wake of the infamous Sharon Tate LaBianca murder spree that took place some seven months following Marina Habe's murder was wearing earrings they believed to have belonged to Marina, the same ones she had on the night she was abducted. To add a final bizarre connection to Incubus, Roman Polanski and wife Sharon Tate had been in attendance at the film's premiere. Eleven months after Marina Habe's murder, in nearly the very same spot in that ravine off Mulholland Drive, the body of Jane Doe number 59 was discovered, murdered in the same manner. Although that victim was incredibly identified 46 years later as 19-year-old 
Reet Jurvetson from Montreal, both murders are still considered cold cases. After 25 years had passed, Anthony Taylor decided to check on his film prints and negative with the intent of preparing a home video release for Incubus. However, Film Lab and Storage Facility, CFI, couldn't locate any prints, negatives, or any film elements they had stored. Further probing indicated all the materials for Incubus had been destroyed, by accident or in error. A lawsuit Taylor filed against CFI was settled out of court in November 1994, and that was thought to be the end for Incubus. But in late 1996, Taylor received an email stating a film print had been discovered at the Cinémathèque Française in Paris, a surviving remnant of the French theatrical release 30 years earlier. But it was not in the best of shape. After some difficulty, a frame-by-frame optical print was finally made and shipped to Taylor's Morro Bay home in California. The film was digitally restored, French subtitles replaced with English ones, and the soundtrack was remastered. Funding for the restoration was provided by the Sci-Fi Channel, and the final Daystar production, not seen in 35 years, was at last released in the U.S., in 2001. Forgotten TV will return in a moment. We are controlling transmission. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. Thrill to the awe and mystery of the hidden world, the outer limits. You will journey into strange realms of science fiction. You will journey through uncharted galaxies from the inner mind of man to the outer limits. The outer limits. Every week on ABC. How do you keep a wagon train rolling? You need muscle and drive. But most of all, you need the personal strength of a wagon master like Chris Hale. I have over 300 people on my wagon train. Two-thirds of them are women and children. You deny them the protection of a military escort, and the odds are you're condemning them to death. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Wagon Train's greatest season. This year, Wagon Train has grown to 90 minutes of incomparable drama. Here you'll meet the pioneers who charged America with a spirit that's never dwindled. The restless ones who wanted something so bad, they went for broke to get it. Look, Mike, I hired you. It's my responsibility for the job you do. And an outfit like this one weak link can cost a lot of lives. And you'll see new all-star casts. Yes, this is for sure. Wagon Train's greatest season. You'll see it every week on ABC. With Daystar now defunct and in significant debt, Leslie Stevens began working on a per-show basis for Universal Television, first writing episodes of The Virginian, and soon writing, directing, and producing new series It Takes a Thief, starring Robert Wagner. Leaving the business end of things to the major studios, his energies were now directed only on the creative side of TV production. He also worked on The Name of the Game and McCloud, as well as the TV movies, potential series pilots, The Aquarians, and I Love a Mystery. 
During these years, he also found himself interested in topics that seemingly had little to do with TV or film. Stevens had more than a passing interest in esoteric New Age philosophies. In 1970, his book, EST, The Steersman Handbook, Charts of the Coming Decade of Conflict, was released in paperback by Bantam Press and written under the pen name of L. Clark Stevens, sounding suspiciously similar to another author. Although Stevens later gave multiple definitions for EST or EST, the primary definition here was electronic social transformation. Witnessing the rise in the daily use of electronic mass media, at the time, television, radio, and telephonic communications, Stevens postulated such use was conditioning the public, especially youth of the era. It could be said the book was a work of science fiction presented as if it was a non-fictional study. Predicting an upcoming transformation of society, what he called the est people, digital natives that would possess the qualities of being technically minded, eclectic, computer literate, needed to navigate the changing configurations of the said transformation of society would arise. The book comments on organized religion, corrupt politics, corporatocracy, and propaganda fed to the public, the rise of authoritarianism, and pollution's impact on the global environment, with some passages so prescient they read like a recent IPCC report. Passages seem to predict flash mobs, 24-hour cable news, the migration of quality scripted programming to pay TV channels, and TV networks fragmenting into niche appeal channels on every conceivable interest, all brought to the viewer via cable TV. The book also mixes in a mishmash of pseudoscientific technobabble and astrology and made overly optimistic predictions still not realized, such as the elimination of famine, domed cities allowing humankind to live anywhere on earth, and police that would no longer use weapons to subdue criminals, and could only serve as police for a limited time to prevent the abuse of power, all while cybernetic technology has made possible the one-day work week. The book in its entirety can be freely borrowed on the Internet Archive, Stevens appeared on radio talk shows and in newspaper articles discussing Est for a few years. People of a certain age might also recall the Erhard Seminars training, weekend courses popular in the 70s and early 80s. The seminars were featured on the recent 80s period FX series, The Americans. Former used car salesman Werner Erhard not coincidentally called his seminars Est lowercase and all. Yes, Erhard borrowed the EST acronym from Stephen's book, as confirmed by three different sources on the subject. Erhard even made the sales team of Mind Dynamics, the company that promoted and booked EST and other seminars, read Stephen's book. Prior to his next TV project, Stevens attempted to establish EST as a non-profit foundation, and got involved in a wildly ambitious project, the account of which threatens to strain the credulity of this audience. In the summer of 1971, 
Stevens was the driving force behind a project he called the Earthside Missile Base Ecology Center, a decommissioned Titan missile base outside Lincoln, California. The former Lincoln missile site was one of 54 Titan II missile sites operated during the Cold War. Lincoln had three missile silos connected to underground launch control centers via subterranean tunnels. The Titan II was an ICBM, or Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, with a two-stage rocket engine capable of reaching a continent on the other side of the planet. At the height of the program in 1960, some 60 missiles stood ready to annihilate the enemy. After the Lincoln site was decommissioned by the government, it was bought by Placer County in 1968 for a mere $25,000, which they financed over five years, and the local sheriff's department began using it as a firearms training range. Envisioned as a tourist attraction, but also a working ecological resource center, some 30 investors put up $35,000 to purchase the site including Hollywood notables Jack Nicholson, Bo Bridges, Kim Darby, Greer Garson, Stanley Kubrick, and then-president of the Screen Actors Guild, John Gavin. Stevens himself was said to be invested to the tune of $15,000. Ongoing monthly operational costs were estimated to run $8,300 a month, a number that was likely an underestimate simply based on the descriptions of all the planned developments for the site. Plans for Earthside included building out the three 160-foot-deep missile silos into biodome-type enclosures with controlled air, land, and water environments. Stevens called these ecotrons. One would be devoted to birds, mammals, and fish, another to insects, and a third to endangered species. A working organic produce farm on the 55-acre surface of the site, as well as farms located in the extensive subterranean complex. A planetarium, a research lab carrying out research on ecology and alternate food crops in coordination with the University of California at Davis a radio station broadcasting information on ecology as well as a connected production studio. And the complex would be at least partially power independent with solar energy and its own recycling. There were even plans to take recycling from the nearby town of Lincoln. The preliminary budget for the entire complex was estimated at a quarter million dollars, around 1.7 million in today's money. Ahead of the official purchase of the land, Stevens was allowed to engage in the first stage of intended development. On September 23, 1971, Earthside Day was held when 500 enthusiastic adults and children arrived with shovels and gardening implements along with donated potted plants, flowers, and tree seedlings to break ground on the surface-level garden and produce farm. O. Bridges conducted the dedication ceremony, and filmmaker George Lucas, taking a break from pursuing financing for his new project, American Graffiti, was in attendance, as was Stephen's own children, Dana and Steve, as well as local and state politicians. Two TV networks, 
seven TV stations, and multiple newspapers were said to have covered the event. An ecology club was founded at the local high school in coordination with the event, who Stevens spoke to earlier in the day. Yes, grand plans were in the works for this location. What happened to the Earthside project? First, much of the funding Stevens anticipated from other major Hollywood names never materialized. According to local newspapers, the month after Earthside Day, Placer County rejected Stevens' bid to purchase the site when he failed to come through with the needed 10% down payment to proceed with purchase negotiations. But after reading multiple Lincoln newspaper articles, it seemed there were other complications. The sheriff's department evidently wanted Earthside to foot the bill of relocating their gun range at a cost of an additional $22,000. And Stevens was also trying to negotiate to cover a portion of these expenses. Stevens was also trying to operate Earthside under his Electronic Social Transformation Foundation, and he was seeking IRS recognition as a nonprofit during this time. By 1974, the near 55-acre property was full of dead tree seedlings and decaying flower beds. A visiting reporter noted a few lilies remained living, but that the peach tree planted at the gate by Stevens' children was the first to wither. By the mid-70s, the Sheriff's Department gun range was expanded and opened to the public. But the story doesn't end there. In 1991, when the property was about to be sold again, the site was found to be contaminated with trichloroethene, or TCI, something that has been discovered to be an issue with a number of former missile sites and rocket testing locations, such as the former Boeing Rocketdyne Field Laboratory, where a number of TV shows like Star Trek, Wonder Woman, and The Bionic Woman used to film. Even more contamination was discovered in 2009, when it was found that the underground complex had filled with water, also contaminated. A multi-year cleanup effort and battle over just what agency was responsible for the cleanup took place. Even later, it was further found that contaminated waste, thought at the time to be standard trash from the site, had been accepted at the city landfill. The landfill was ordered closed in 2014, and the city of Lincoln sued the federal government over costs incurred by contamination mitigation efforts. Leslie Stevens' original plan for the former missile site to offer life instead of death as its message now remains dashed like the cruel twist ending of an Outer Limits episode. The Titan missile site was originally located about a mile and a half east of the city. But over the decades, the city, of course, has expanded. The edge of the Sun City suburb of Lincoln now sits just a thousand feet west of the former missile site. For more information on the life of Leslie Stevens, particularly his early years, his personal life with Kate Manx, and the making of private property, please read Leslie Stevens Goes to Hollywood 
by Dory Page, who spent an incredible 15 years researching the life of Mr. Stevens and has conducted numerous exclusive interviews with key people in his life. This book was invaluable in putting together the narrative of this half of these podcasts and her additional assistance providing details and context not found in the book was also of great help. Next time on Forgotten TV. This was only half the story. On the next Forgotten TV, we continue our look at Leslie Stevens, including his work on The Invisible Man, Gemini Man, and a complete look at his 1972 TV series, Search. Go behind the scenes of this series as we discuss the casting, the creative names behind the show, stories and anecdotes from show production, the mid-season production shakeup, and the story behind the name change of the series that's never been told before now. A look at Steven's involvement with late 1970s TV blockbuster Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers in the 25th century. The 1990s and the return of Steven's iconic classic, The Outer Limits. And a look at his legacy and impact beyond the world of entertainment as well as the story behind the rediscovery and restoration of his avant-garde 1960 film, Private Property. The conclusion of the Leslie Stevens retrospective, next time on Forgotten TV. You can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and gain access to exclusive content posted, which includes Forgotten TV Supplemental. About 20 podcasts in addition to the ones in the main feed, which include documentaries on ABC and the Still the One Era and the untold real history of the video rental industry. This episode was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and Robert, with producers Julio Capa, Rich Kunkel, Mark Hadley, K.L. Young, Ralph Carosio, and Ron. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by ABC, Universal Television, United Artists Television, MGMUA, NBC Universal, Daystar Productions, Leslie Stevens Productions, Villa Di Stefano Productions, Contempo 3 Productions, Citation Films, Sinalicious Picks, The Leslie Stevens or Joseph Stefano Estates, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. The film's private property, Incubus, The Outer Limits, and other series and films mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Any audio clips included are for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2021 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own, and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts period news media, books and website articles, 
all reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented. However, Forgotten TV media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of those audio clips possible. 1920s Music Firm, Bach Flat, Film at Lincoln Center, The Allison Hayes Channel 36, Movie Clips Classic Trailers, Coast to Coast AM Official, 11DB11, The Midnight DJ, Brian Durham, Jeff Film 80, Fred Flicks, Ion TV, Boislav Kostovsky, and Houston Radio Rewind. Dark Moment by Pollyanna Maxim, Creepy Thoughts by Phoenix Tail, Eye for Detail by Jay Varton, and Solstice by Spectacles Wallet and Watch are used under license by Epidemic Sound. If you need music for your podcast or YouTube channel, please check out Epidemic Sound. Link in the show notes. Density of Being by Dream State Logic is used with permission and under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. A special thanks to Dory Page and John Strong. Sources of quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following sources. Leslie Stevens Goes to Hollywood Daystar Productions, Kate Manx, and The Making of Private Property by Dory Page. The Outer Limits Companion by David J. Shaw. The Tragic Death of Marina Habe by Ty Taylor. And articles at the websites Quartz, Travelanche, Shock Cinema, Flapper Press, Bright Lights Film Journal, Gold Country Media, MichaelSala.com, Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie, The Secret Sun Blog, FOIA.CIA.gov, MissingLeads.com, The Lost Girls Blog, The Internet Archive, The Roseville, California Press Tribune, The Lincoln News Messenger, and several other vintage newspaper articles from Newspapers.com available on request. Thank you for listening. Be sure and bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links to social media sites. I am your host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV.